Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and I want to welcome you to Season 3 of Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with authentic and courageous leaders from all over the globe. You will learn from leaders you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolkit. Leadership belongs to all of us. It's not measured by stature or title. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. You know, we are now in season three of Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. And I'm just, I continue in awe to be completely inspired by the amazing leaders that I I am finding around the globe in different industries. And I reached out to the gentleman that I'm interviewing today, and I just shared my heart and why I wanted to interview him. And I was so delighted that he was able to make time to do so. So I want to introduce you to Shannon Gregory. He is the Chief of Flight Operations at Kennedy Space Center in beautiful Cape Canaveral, Florida. And a little fun fact, Kennedy Space Center is located on Merritt Island in Florida. And I actually remember visiting as a, as a child with my family. And it's one of 10 field centers of NASA. And I know, and, and maybe Shannon will correct me when we talk, I do believe, and this goes back to when I was a very young girl, that since 1968, NASA Kennedy Space Center has been the main launch center of human spaceflight. So I look forward to a great conversation, and I'd like to welcome Shannon to the show. Well, uh, Deb, uh, good morning, and good morning to all your listeners. And uh, yeah, it's uh, just an honor to be here and to be chatting with you and all of your, uh, and all of your listeners. I, I want to give the listeners a bit of a, a description of who you are and your leadership. And you like to say that you're energetic, forward-leaning, detail-oriented, and I know you have surpassed 25 years in a senior leadership role. And I know that you have quite a comprehensive role working with technical professionals. So my first leadership question is, the aerospace and defense industry are ever-changing. How do you as a leader stay up-to-date on aerospace-related current events to really help foster and, I guess, move you forward progressively as a heart-centered leader? Oh, that's a great question, Deb. And, uh, you know, really one of the great ways I do that is uh, listening to a lot and partnering with a lot of uh, industry leaders um, and really getting the kind of ear on the street or kind of a guy on the street sort of impact on what they're doing, some things that they're thinking. Um, there are various podcasts I listen to uh, quite often to ensure that I'm getting the newest information. One of my favorites, which actually is not a NASA uh, podcast at all. It's called The Everyday Astronaut. So there's a uh, now an expert, actually, at some of the, the what's going on in, in all things aerospace and especially in human space flight. And it's fun to hear different takes on that as well. And then many times it's uh, hearing from some of our astronauts as well and what they see as some of the new things um, that uh, that are developing 
within the aerospace industry. And and as you as you mentioned earlier, it is a fluid and amazing thing that we're a part of now as we continue on. Um, it's exciting to be here. And of course, the weather is great, but the energy, you can just feel the buzz of just all the things going on. And, and every now and then it's, it's really neat. You have to pinch yourself that you're actually, I'm actually a part of it. You know, I, I can relate to that. And, and as you're talking, it just brings me back to when I was a young girl and we visited the center as a family. And then when you see things after that on TV, you just, it brings you back to that exact moment. It's almost what I like to refer to as an heirloom memory that you kind of engrave on your heart as a child. And I'm sure as a child, did you ever think you were going to land up working at NASA? I, you know, I, I, I didn't as a kid, but I did have a love for uh, all things uh, NASA. Um, I loved the space shuttle program and, and really followed as a young man and as a kid. Really one of the things that kind of set my mind to hopefully eventually working for NASA was uh, the Challenger tragedy. And as I learned more about the inner workings and how NASA actually worked, um, I really wanted to always get involved with it. So it's like the dream job that kind of aligns with some real realities and being able to align both those up has been um, a great honor for me. Well, and and almost truly serendipitous. I, I love when leaders tell me about the intersection or alignment of, of their goals and dreams and visions. And it's just miraculous. And, and I'm going to ask you a bit more about that in a minute. But my, my second question on the show... I have decided to allow it to have permanent residency because I think it's important for our listeners to hear from leaders at all different levels across many sectors from various regions across the globe. Share with us what imperfections that Shannon brings to his heart-centered leadership. And and we always have a lot of fun and a bit of candor and a bit of laughter. It's a 30-minute show. So 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 pick your top one or two that you feel have been resident with you in your career. Oh, absolutely. Um, the things that have always been kind of tough for me is kind of uh, admin work. Sometimes the, the admin part of the side to a point where one of my chiefs asked, uh, boss, you're going to need an admin. Like we got to figure out how to get you an admin. Um, because if you can imagine the amount of uh, information that comes through and things that are wanted, things that are want, basically want chief's approval and things like that. There are many times where um, we as leaders can get really lost in some of um, some of those corresponding type of things that come through. If it's email or voicemail or phone calls or uh, IMs or chats, um, there are many times when some of those things get lost. So you'd be driving home at night and figure, okay, was that an email? Was that a chat? Was that a text message? Or was that a call? And many cases, that, that sometimes is hard to navigate. And that's really one of the things that I always wanted to get better at and one of my imperfections that I'm looking to correct. Well, I think many listeners, and and I'll throw myself in this in this sentence, it, we are inundated with technology, and and now to have that that question below the main question, you knew something came in, what platform? And <laughs> and then it's the second guessing. You know, it's like leaving the house. Did I leave the oven on? You know, was it right. an IM? Was it an email? So that's that's a first that someone has said on the show. It's it's not the inundation of information coming at you. It's it's trying to keep organized from where and when. So that's a great one that no one's alluded to. So thank you for sharing that. 
Now, you have a military background. I do. And I'm quite delighted to ask you this question because I'm excited to hear the answer, and I know our listeners will be as well. Share with us what transferable skills that have led you well in your leadership journey since you transitioned from the military. It's kind of a two-part question. Oh, great. What was the final question or what was the final thought or reasoning when you knew to exit the military and what drew you to land at NASA? Um, I'll, I'll answer the second part first. I think um, my entire career, I had a great respect for uh, the military's ability, uh, especially in flying, was to help people. So I was a medical or medevac or medical evacuation pilot for a number of years and really wanted to, more than anything in the military, be the commanding officer of that particular unit to have the biggest impact to that mission that I really, really loved. So um, the neat part about setting goals is eventually we as leaders will get there. And then, you know, how do we manage that once we get there? And then how do we manage beyond that? How do we ensure that the people that come behind us have that same opportunity to be able to either continue your vision or, if not, to continue their own vision that is aligned with your vision as well? So I knew it was time to do some other things when you get to a certain age and and retirement is Military retirement is something that's available for you. And I really had a strange desire to continue on to do something different, but it was still aligned with flying and aerospace. And NASA was that thing that I always thought, okay, that is a shot in the dark. That is so far. That's a move out of state, you know. And and I think sometimes the friction that we experience in our lives is the thing that holds us up to uh, greater achievement. Um, so that's uh, one part of your one part of your question. I think um, the transferable thing from military leadership that I was able to bring with was that continued sort of heart, heartfelt sort of care for each individual person. And um, I was coined with the phrase. Um, as a military type of sort of aviation commander or commanding officer, we always talk about the important people. Everyone is important. Everyone is important. But one day I had a formation and I said, um, raise your hand if you are a mechanic in my, in my unit. So maybe about 30 hands went up. And I pointed around. I said, let me tell you about who the most important people in this unit are. It's them. And I had a couple of pilots hit me afterwards and say, you know, boss, I really don't appreciate you saying that us pilots are important. We're technical and tactical leaders. Yeah, yeah, I understand that. But if I don't make it the best place to work for the person that's fixing your helicopter, then it's going to be harder to work for you here. So the thing that transfers really well is that appreciation for the individual. And that that love factor for that particular um, that particular person or that particular profession. So the Marine Corps is the best at this, actually. So I had my early uh, career was as a Marine, uh, actually a Marine infantryman. So I was a Marine infantryman, and um, I wanted to serve kind of doing the hardest kind of job the Marine Corps had to offer. Like, what am I going to learn by being down here with these great people? And the thing I learned is is that there's a significant amount of love between us. Of course, between us, 
and for Truman, there is a significant amount of sibling rivalry and what I call internal combativeness, which kind of uh, really expressed a lot of competitiveness about, uh, about us. And I still have a friend that will call me up a month before a marathon and ask if I want to run it with him. Now, he's that kind of friend. Actually, I did it one time. He actually paid for my marathon. And, and wanted to be kind of, I think he wanted to beat me on the marathon. So um, that sort of individual love is something that transfers very well from military um, to civilian. Um, and at times it's hard for our civilian um, colleagues to understand it. But I think if we articulate it in a way of building trust, I think it works better that way. Well, and it's so interesting. There's so many nuggets in there I want to ask you about. You know, you have your medical background, as do I, and trust and rapport are the foundation, regardless of the sector. Absolutely. I, my definition of heart-centered leadership is honoring your connection with people, which you just alluded to so beautifully sharing your experience from the military. And I think people get misconstrued or apprehensive in their thinking because the military, the Marine Corps, et cetera, are also systematic. There's a systematic process and protocol to follow, but it doesn't mean that there's not room for heart-centered leadership like you just alluded to, which is beautiful. I love that. Now, my last question is, we were talking about this before we hit record, share with us kind of the overview, if you will, of both good and bad leaders and and how they've really fostered you to become the heart-centered leader you are today? Uh, that's a great question, too. I think um, some of the best leaders, and I will, I will name him by name. His name is Richard Jittams. So Richard Jittams was the best leader I worked with my entire time in the military. And it was very early in the military, it was. Um, I was a young Lance Corporal in the same unit, the 2nd Battalion of the 2nd Marines, and he was my company commander. So Captain Didims at the time was that exceptional leader. So my goal working with him was I was his primary radio operator. So if you've ever seen the, the, the movies where there's a radio operator and then there's like a, uh, like a commander on a radio and there's a guy following him that's connected to the radio, that generally was me. And we had a, a, a kind of a neat, really, rapport and also um, kind of a fun um, interaction between us. And I was so proud to be his radio operator because he was such an exceptional leader. So we had uh, an opportunity to go into some combat scenarios and, and situations in Haiti in um, 1990, around 1994, actually. And the way he responded to the people, the way he responded to his leaders, and the way he responded to his Marines were so consistent to me that I always hung my hat on, would, would, would Captain Didims, he retired as a lieutenant colonel, would, would Lieutenant Colonel Didims appreciate me either acting like this or doing this particular thing? Now, given I did not um, make him happy all the time. Um, but he was that kind of exceptional leader that made me want to be better. One example, other than the couple that I mentioned, is that when it came to doing like regular Marine things like running and working out or going to the range, or he was always the best at it, which I thought, 
is he's kind of an exceptional guy. <laughs> well, so we go to the range. Who's the high shooter? Well, it's Captain Didims and gunnery sergeant so-and-so. I'm like, wow, okay, neat. He would come out and say, okay, hey, uh, I know we have this physical fitness test. Whoever beats me on the run gets the weekend off. So, okay, we figured, you know, we're all young, 19, 20 years old, like, oh, yeah, who's this guy? The old man, we got him. And he would take off so quickly, and we wouldn't be able to catch him. So it was just, it always inspired us to do more, to, to challenge ourselves, to be um, just more pliable Marines, flexible as well in thought and also in action and character, um, and to be uh, just better as, uh, as men. So it was a really neat place that he got me to, to, to really motivate some of the work that I've done in my life. Conversely, some of, the, um, some of the leaders that weren't as heartfelt or weren't as connected to or didn't feel as positive, I would take some of the things and tools that they were working with or some of the interactions or the way that they talked to either subordinates or either um, um, superiors or peers and, and, and really took that in as well as things not to do. And many of us have those same leaders that exist all over. I call them high functional individuals, but low trust individuals. So generally those leaders are probably very good at what they do. They're probably very good, but then they have this low trust problem. So all of us in teams have individuals that are peers that have that particular issue, or we have folks that have that issue that are our leaders. And how do we navigate those folks? Oh, there's a way to navigate them as well. I love the way you frame that highly functional, but low trust. And it just anchors back to what you said earlier about, you know, if we don't have trust, we don't have anything foundationally. And really good point where you said, you observe the behavior. And as a heart-centered leader, We just put that observation into our business acumen, into our toolkit. We don't have to respond. We don't have to repeat the behavior, but we can acknowledge and observe. And we know it's something that will never be in our wheelhouse in terms of our behavior. That is such an interesting observation. I love that. Now I have to switch to my fab four, which I'm probably, I may, I may actually ask you six just because I could sit and talk to you all day. But before I do that, I want to ask you one more question. That's not really leadership. It's more of a character or a personal question. Sure. Did you find it difficult to come off the hypervigilance of being a medevac, leaving the military? Was there a little bit of time in there where you just needed to kind of be silent, maybe gain some equanimity before you transitioned to NASA? Because I think a lot of people that don't understand the medical world and especially what you were doing, I was a neurotrauma case manager. So like you, I was always around a lot, a lot of injury, a lot of insult, a lot of trauma. Right. And sometimes people don't realize our adrenaline maxes out in milliseconds. Sure. And how how did you approach that time? And, and how did you come down from the hypervigilance to transition to where you are now? Yeah, that's a great question. I think a couple of things I had to do, one of which was I had to find a role really where I could take some time to hone a couple of skills. 
some of the sort of detailed work that I had to get into, some of the um, work that required a lot of feedback as well, some of that work. So that prepared me a little bit coming off of that. Um, the flying and that high it, it adventure, that actually was difficult. I mean, um, many folks coming out of the military will either buy motorcycles or, um, or, or, or do sort of high-risk activity to keep that going a little bit. And um, I think through a lot of work, you know, even a little bit of therapy um, and talking to some people. And then another opportunity with something called the Outward Bound Veterans Program, where um, when in transition, those programs are available to veterans to actually just get outside, get outside for a week and to do some sort of self-reflection through uh, some team building and some other things to provide you with um, a foundation uh, once you're through and in that transitional phase. So I had to do that a little bit. I think I think some of those roles where you take a step back to understand how organizations work are good. I had to go get an MBA, so I went and did that and got some education and figured that out as well. And then um, when the situation or opportunity presented itself, I was, I felt more prepared for it instead of coming right out of a high impact operational type of role, then into another high impact operational role. I had some time back. I had some time to relax. I had some time to understand. I had some time to learn how to do some other things like technical writing and other things that I had to learn how to do. So now on this end, when it comes to, Hey, I need you to write a, you know, 20, 30 page report on this, it becomes a little bit more fluid. And now I understand what that individual contributor work was and was meant for. That was for me to get ready for this next step out here. Well, and I love that there were several modalities that you took into consideration and, and I align with you. I, it took me a year and I did very similar to what you did And took the time to think about and embrace the transferable skills moving forward. You don't really realize all that you do until you sit down and make a list. All right. All right. Right. And and how many tasks and subtasks and and you forget what you're packing up before you got to the military. Mm -hmm. And it's such a fun leadership journey experience to to ponder and review. And it just sounds like you spent the time and the effort to to set yourself up for success moving to NASA, which is amazing. Thanks. One thing I had to realize too, is that if it's going, what it will take to be successful in the future is not all the things that I've already done. There'll be more that I'll have to bring to bear. So I used to have in an old um, in my home office, behind me is generally a shadow box that has all the medals and things that I've gotten. And I used to point to it and say, let me tell you something. To go forward in this organization is going to take a lot more than that. And I used to point to it than what I'm currently doing. I'm going to have to get smarter, become more flexible and pliable to be able to address the challenges that are in the future. And that part really gets me excited. With leadership itself, I love coming to an organization that needs a little bit of work. You wouldn't think that with NASA, but there are certain things in every organization that should key off the, the heart-centered sort of focus leader. One of the things that I love hearing, which I won't say I love it, but it does get me going. 
well, that's the way it's kind of been. Or for the last year, it's been like this. Or for the last five years, this thing has been broken. So then that gives the leader an opportunity just to kind of tune into a couple of those things and to, you know, put an ear out there and be solution-based. So when team members start figuring out that this particular individual is out there working to, to mitigate some of those things, to change everything for the better. Like, holy cow, you can only get better. And I tell my team, here's the goal, to get better 2% per day. And it's like 2% only seems like so much. However, um, the, the infinite game, like Simon Sinek talks about, the 2% per day only packs on top of itself as we get better, as we get closer, as we get our service delivery gets better. And if you can imagine, Matt, NASA is involved with service delivery. I have customers that I have here, even though it's government. And I get my folks to think, okay, realize if these individuals that are flying with us or the crew that we're actually supporting or the launch we're actually supporting um, is our customer and how well do we engage with them and how well do we serve them? So that love and heart sort of centered leadership affects the, the love and the heart centered work that we put outside. And then if you put out a lot of good, you'll only receive a lot of good. That's the neat part about it. And even that bad will just feel like just a challenge that you're going through at that particular time. You know, I, I had an Irish Nana and she used to say, the more good you put out, it's always going to come back tenfold. That was her quotient. And I remember being eight or nine when she first said that. And you never waste kindness on anybody. Absolutely. It may not always be received, but that's for your leadership toolkit, much like you alluded to before. Sure. Okay, I'm going to switch to my Fab Four, but okay. I, ha- I have to have some fun here because sure. it's you. And I need to know, are you going to see Top Gun Maverick? I need to know if if Tom Cruise is, is pulling you in. Deb, I will tell you that uh, as a fan, I have already seen Top Gun. <laughs> I knew it. I knew you were going to say that. You you helped make the, I don't even know what the record amount was in the millions on the first weekend, Memorial Weekend for all of you in the States. And and what was, what what's your critic view of it? Did Was it real? Is it everything that his vision and, and project wanted the, the viewer to see? Okay, I will, I will warn you and your fans, uh, your listeners, that I am a fan, um, but I will temper my fanatic tendency and I will just be technical on the movie. Um, it was an incredible highlight of the capabilities of our F-18 fighter fleet in the United States. It was pretty close to that. Now, some, you know, there's some movie magic in there a bit. But most of the flying scenes you see are real because you can see the impact of the flying on the pilots. Finally, you can see it. It's actually happening. You can actually see it happening with Tom Cruise, which is kind of funny as well. Um, and I would say remarkable. Some of the other things that are so just aggressive, even just getting pushed off the uh, the flight deck, you can see that that is an aggressive thing that happens like Holy cow, F-18 pilots can't necessarily hold on to the flight controls when you get sent off the deck because it's so quick. As soon as you clear the deck, there's there's actually these two handles folks will hold on to. And if you look real close, you'll see Tom Cruise do it. 
And then uh, all of a sudden, as soon as you get off the deck, you put your hands on the flight controls and you basically get back into the flight mode of flying. So to me, it was very exciting. If you're into an exciting action-packed movie, he did not. And Top Gun does not disappoint. There you go. Two thumbs up. I mean, two thumbs up from the chief of flight operations at, at NASA. There you go. Like, <laughs> see what we do for our listeners? Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna switch to my Fab Four. And yes. these are just these are just four random fun questions. We want to know what's sitting on the top of your your brilliant mind. The questions, you know, you get asked where you don't really think. It's just whatever's sitting there. Sure. So the first question is tell us something that we don't know about you. Um, one thing is that I'm uh, an avid runner. I love running. Um, I want to get better at it. I've, I've had a desire to start running long races, uh, to the point of, you know, I think ultra racing is anywhere from 35, to 50 mile races and really want to get into it. Um, it's pretty wild in, in Florida. It's hard to train for cause it's really hot and humid here. Um, so some of the um, Midwestern states are a little bit better in the summertime, but down here is great for the winter. Um, that's one fab four fun thing. Um, another thing is that I'm a Jeep guy. I love Jeeps. I love off-roading. I think it's kind of fun um, to the point where the, my kids think it's funny that I've owned up to five Jeeps in my military career. And it started in Marine Corps. A friend of mine let me borrow a Jeep. Then I bought one. Then I bought another one. And well, you know, another one and another one and another one. And now here I am to the fifth Jeep. And um, yeah, um, the kids joke, my kids joke with me about, I generally buy two types of vehicle and I don't disappoint on that. So Jeep number five. And, and you know what? It's it's an element as a leader where you honor your self-care and it's been a continuity for you. And it's even funner when your kids laugh at you. Oh, yeah. yeah. My kids laugh at me. Um, and then one fun thing um, that I will mention, when I was in the Marine Corps, I was uh, a stunt double for Sidney Portier in a movie called The Jackal. So uh, I was in the Marine Corps and sometimes, you know, you think you're doing regular Marine stuff and someone's like, all right, hey, you, you. The seven of you, you're working this weekend, and we got on a helicopter, flew to Richmond, Virginia, and did, like, these shots for this movie. So someone looked at me and said, you're about as tall as he is. Okay, great. I'm like, what are you talking about? And I put a suit on and did, I fast roped out of a CH-53 helicopter um, with a helmet on like I was Sidney Portier, and then got to meet him. Um, and he was an exceptional gentleman as well. The fun part about that whole story is that he asked me how the Marine Corps was, like, how are things, you know, how are things? And I said, well, they would be much better. And at the time, I was really contemplating getting into this flying thing. I have to figure out how to become a pilot. So it'd be much better military experience if I were a pilot. I think that's what I want to do. And he basically stopped me and said, well, well, I strictly charge you to right now within the next week to really get involved and find out what it takes to get there. So that put kind of a fire in me. He saw another pilot that actually was on the movie set and we talked and then that pilot aligned me up with an opportunity uh, in the army to fly helicopters as well. So what a serendipitous moment for you and, and an heirloom memory. And oh my gosh, that needs to go on your CV. It, <laughs> I've thought about it. I have, I have the picture of the actual jump that I did. And it's just kind of like, oh, it, it, you don't feel like it happened because it's kind of like a different you. But 
um, he was a great, he was a great, great guy. And just the, the, the eight, 10 hours I got to spend with Sidney Portier shooting a scene. Um, it was really fun to work with him and work around him and also give me that extra push to do something. So those are maybe a couple of things. That's, that's amazing. What a, what a great, great story. And, you know, the moral of that story is never say no to weekends because you never know what opportunity might be just around the corner. And, and you thought you were just doing an exercise. I did. I did. And it just showed up to be something kind of neat. Oh, I love that. That's great. Okay. Second question, name a book that has impacted you at any point in your life. It can be any age. And if you could share the title and the author and just how it impacted you. Uh, the Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. I actually keep it up here um, on my shelf here. Um, uh, that's one of them. And The Soul of a Nation from um, John Meacham. So two books, uh, two separate things. One really deals with organizations and leadership and thinking um, through your own organization and not to be a finite leader, but to think and work in the infinite game. So if we constantly get better, constantly are in tune, we we tend to have a longer run that's better instead of a shorter run that's only successful. So that's one of the books. And then The Soul of America really just deals with um, America itself and our history and some of the good and bad points and really some of the things we can do better um, really to align ourselves with our true ideals as Americans. So John... John, John Beecham is great at this. I mean, exceptional at it. Um, he's a history writer by trade. So to read through it, I mean, his cadence and um, the way he delivers uh, is pretty exceptional. I have one more book. Um, one last book that I had to read, and it was one of those, I couldn't put it down. I had to, holy cow, read through this thing. Um, and I'm forgetting the author's name, but it was called No Easy Day. So it was a Navy SEAL book about the raid on uh, the Bin Laden compound um, in Pakistan. So it's not just the big raid, which is the best part about it. I think he talks more about the adventurous life that kind of got him there. So during Iraq and Afghanistan, during the wars, there, there are a slew of these books and they, some of them start out the same about kind of seal life and kind of, but I think he did a better job of highlighting some of those things to the point where if some of these points were so high end that you forgot that that raid was at the end of the book, I get, would get done with a chapter like, wow, that was pretty, pretty exciting um, or um, pretty uh, deftifying. So yeah, those three books right now are my favorite. I'm working on a couple more. Um, one about the space program, basically about uh, John F. Kennedy and John Glenn um, called a Mercury Rising. And um, that's just another one that I'm working through right now. So great question. You're an avid reader, which I I don't think I've interviewed a leader on this podcast who isn't an avid reader. I think it's part of our leadership. When I started my company at 24, I remember one of my mentors saying to me, read two books, read one to learn and one to grow. Right. Right. Which I think is great. And like you, I have a stack of books I'm reading right now. And I've had so many leaders on the show that have written books. So I've been gifted with, I think, three shelves now in my, my bookcase here in my office of amazing books. And we all learn from each other, which is phenomenal. Okay, third question. Um, let me let me 
put some context around this. Um, I'm granting you a wish. Sure. And you get to have dinner with a leader and you can't use uh, Lieutenant Colonel Didums because you've already talked about him. And this leader can be living. It could be someone who's passed away. Who are you having dinner with and what is the dinner conversation? Um, I can think of two guys that I would want to sit across and chat with, but I'll, I'll nail it down to one guy and I'm sure he's not that busy right now. The former president, Barack Obama, I'd want to talk to him and we would probably talk through one, our opportunities in America to, um, you know, be more, a more perfect union. And how do we accomplish that where everyone feels like they're heard in their country? Because I generally ask leaders, do they feel like they want to be chosen, understood, or heard? And generally, people want to be understood. But I think as big as our country is, it's sometimes hard to accomplish that. But generally, people want to be, the first step there is being heard. So how do we have a country where every citizen feels like they're being heard to the point where the positive parts are taking are being taken from those interactions? So that's that's probably one thing I'd want to talk through, perhaps talking more about um, how do we unleash a little bit of this um, sort of political paralysis? How do we get past that? And then I want to ask fun questions about, you know, what do you see? You probably want to ask me about what do you see as future uh, opportunities in spaceflight and probably some of those things as well. So that is a leader now I'd want to talk to. You know, I'm going to call this intuition. I had a feeling you were going to pick him. Um, And one of the reasons why is that even in the face of intolerance or even, even, you know, even some ignorance, he was still relatively measured. And that is a very, very difficult thing to do for a real human on the planet, where there are times where I feel like I have to be measured and I have to take a step back, Shannon, be measured. Do not react in that note or that email or that text message or in that conversation. And I told someone um, the other day is that I will always provide grace, especially when that person does not deserve it. You know, it's really interesting. I teach my executives and I call it the Barack Obama five. I was gifted a few years ago on my birthday tickets to see him. He came to our capital in Canada in Ottawa. Wow. And he was at the largest facility. I don't even know how many tens of thousands of people. And even though I was in the nosebleed section, when he came out from around the stage and he had the Secret Service beside him, the energy in this arena, everybody jumped to their feet and I just started crying. And I remember my daughter looking at me and she's like, mom, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, I can't believe we're in the same room as him. And what I learned was the Barack Obama five. I love his body posture. Sure. I love his visceral level of equanimity. And when he's asked a question, and I'm a yoga teacher, so I watch how people breathe. He takes a deep breath without it being apparent. And I think he counts to five because I've watched him. And I've, I've literally watched him. And he's mindful of his body posture, his nonverbal cues, his facial expressions. He takes that breath. He counts to five. And then he answers with this eloquence and softness. And I think if every leader could just, you know, take a little bit of that 
And and like you said, take the take the Barack Obama five. You don't have to respond to that email. And it comes back to people wanting to be seen and heard and listened to and validated. Absolutely. And that five gives us that little cognitive, emotional, physiological reset that we just need because sometimes we just want to respond. And that's when we have to do that that self-audit. So I'm not surprised to hear that in talking to you and doing my research for the podcast. And I think he's a mentor for you. So I think you need to call him and have dinner. <laughs> I'll need to call him and align that up. Get my people. Yeah, get your people get to call people. his people. You probably could, given where you work. Just say it. Right. You guys heard that first. So if, you have, if your people are out there, feel free. Just uh, give me a call. It's great. I'll answer. So when you have the dinner, send me an email and and do keep in touch and let me know how great it was because it'll, it'll probably happen for you. We'll do a selfie and we'll send it straight to Deb. There you go. Well, before I close out the show with my fourth question, I just want to say that I don't like using the word busy. So I'm going to say, I know that you are an intentionally progressive professional And I'm so thankful for the time that you shared today, giving us a small glimpse into your world and the expertise that you bring. And it makes me smile as a professional and the host of this podcast that you lead with heart. And it's just another sector that I love putting out to our listeners to realize that heart-centered leadership is in all sectors. You just have to look for it. It absolutely is. Absolutely. And I look forward to keeping in touch. I always tell my guests that I'm now a life sentence because we are now connected and I honor that. I honor that connection very much. Absolutely. Okay. We're, we're going to close out the show and I'm going to ask you to finish this sentence for me. Heart-centered leadership is? Heart-centered leadership is grace, equity, and flexibility. Thanks for joining me today on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed the show today and learned some new tools for your leadership from our amazing Heart-Centered guest. And if you like the show, we would welcome a rating and review on whatever platform you listen to. And we would love to have any comments or feedback at any time. And if you want some more Heart-Centered goodness, Head over to our daily blog, masteringtheheart.com.